Hi, I'm Lucy Adams from Disruptive HR. Welcome to one of our podcast series where you'll hear from HR practitioners who are genuinely doing things differently. If you're looking to change your HR practices, then why not check out the Disruptive HR Club? It's got tons of videos, webinars and downloadable guides that will give you all the ideas and practical help you'll need. Check it out at www.disruptivehr.club. Hi, and welcome to another podcast from Disruptive HR. And today, uh, my business partner, Karen Moran, and myself, Lucy Adams, we're talking to Dick Veenman. And Dick, you're the founder of a company called The Right Conversation. Indeed, I am. Yes. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Now, we're recording this in the middle of lockdown, uh, in the middle of uh, this terrible COVID-19 crisis that we're that we're in. And, and, you know, we will, of course, mention um, that and look at that in, in the light of conversations. But but really what we want to also do is just talk generally about the role that great conversations can have and how it can really help HR. They focus on the conversational aspect rather than the process aspect. It can help HR do things differently. But let's kick off really just by talking a bit about you, Dick. Just give us a bit about your background and a bit about your company and and why did you choose to focus on conversations? Okay. Yeah, let me, uh, I, I guess there's, there's, two sides to this as always there's a there's a personal side and a sort of contextual side let me briefly do the uh, the personal bit um so i started life way back as a sort of strategy consultant mba and all that stuff and then what lots of mbas do is they become strategy consultants <laughs> uh, and what i what you learn pretty quickly in that world is that it's very rational, it's very analytical, it's very clever, uh, and then you have to communicate the strategy. And you learn pretty quickly that a strategy really is only as good as the extent to which people buy into it and get it. Um, and that the old cliche of, a, of a, an average strategy implemented brilliantly is much more powerful than a brilliant strategy that people don't get. Um, yeah. So I became interested at that point in the bit of the, that process that most consultants didn't do, which was the communication part. So once you've done the clever bit, how do you get people to buy into it? So I jumped ship into the world then of employee comms, uh, which was in the 90s when I made that move quite nascent. It was sort of emerging from a pretty undervalued function where it was a sort of quarterly newsletter, annual chief exec roadshow, not much. Uh, and it was just starting to become a bit more powerful. So I then spent uh, a number of years in that field. And again, though, what you realize is even in that world, there's a tendency to package messages, to pump them out and to tell a story. Yeah. Um, and at the end of that, you realize that you, you can't PowerPoint people into change, however clever you are. <laughs> I've never oh. heard PowerPoint being used as a verb before. <laughs> well, yeah, it's two PowerPoint. There you go. Um, oh, but, you know, it was a year of nice motivational videos and M people soundtracks and, and it's all quite rah-rah. <laughs> yeah. rah. and, and you realize that actually the bit where change happens is when someone sits down with someone and talks about it. And that's where the meaning is created for me to understand the strategy. So the final link in in the communication process for me was quite clearly the conversation that a manager has to have. 
And it also seemed to us at the time, and to me certainly, that that's the bit that really wasn't attended to. So managers were given briefing packs, do this, do that. Yeah, yeah. And HR wasn't really equipping people to do that because HR was telling people how to run processes. So there was this gap called the conversation, and we just became interested in that. Uh, and I hooked up with a guy called John Higgins, who was out of Ashridge Business School, and we really started to play with the idea of, well, the conversation. So that's the sort of personal journey. Now, everything is a context, of course, and, and, and what was happening in the world, I think, was, was helpful to the thinking we were doing, uh, which is that there are, I think, some macro trends that we started to notice, which were, I think, asking questions of leaders and what does it mean to be a leader in the modern world. So things like the decline in trust, we don't trust leaders, we don't trust big corporates. The decline, uh, or what we call the death of deference, we don't defer to authority the way we used to. Uh, the changing relationship between employers and employees and the rise of the sort of the gig economy and a much more transactional short-term relationship between many companies and the people who work for them. And we can see that playing out now, obviously, uh, the whole precarious nature of that. Um, interestingly, technology and the fact that increasingly in the world, anyone has a voice. Anyone can speak yeah. about anything, you know, or, or, or any number of platforms or social media groups. And yet when you came to work, you didn't have that amount of voice. You were still trapped in a sort of top-down yeah. communication mm -hmm. structure. Uh, clearly the whole VUCA thing, the world is changing unbelievably fast. And I don't think we could have a more potent example of that no. than coronavirus. I mean, I hadn't even heard of it three months ago. So, and now the, you know, a third of the world is on lockdown. So this is unbelievably fast change. And I think the other thing we noticed was that obviously the nature of work was changing. So a lot of the work that people did or do now is quite intangible. It's a service type work where you can't really measure what people do mm -hmm. as easily as we used to be able to. Um, so we just started to notice these things and said, well, what does that mean if you're leading today? And I think broadly put, what we could start to see was that you have an old leadership model, which is broadly, and I mean, and I obviously use the word advisedly, broadly based on the idea that you can predict what's coming down the track. Mm -hmm. So a bunch of people in a room can make a plan to deal with that. And then the job of the, those people in that room, the leaders, is to communicate the plan. So for us, leadership communication over the recent decades, I would suggest, has been about telling. Broad, and I don't mean in a nasty way telling, as in shouting, but as in I have the answer and I'm telling you yeah. sort of what to because that's what leaders do. Now, if you look at the new world, which is not predictable, but VUCA, where you don't have a plan, but you're constantly adapting the plan to an ever-changing reality, you have to move from telling to talking with people. So the way we are starting to think of it is to say, actually, leadership is, is about moving away from the idea that you always have the right answer to enabling the right conversation. 
So and that's for really us, hard for some leaders, and we can look at this in in a little while. But I think that that kind of that desire to be bigger than, stronger than, no more, uh, the biggest individual contributor. You know, yeah. a lot of leaders do find that very hard to move away from, don't they? To- totally and understandably so, because I think we've obviously created a world where those people have been uh, revered and respected, mm-hmm. and indeed rewarded. They have risen to the top. So the mm-hmm. system that's got them to the top has worked for them so why would you why would you then change that system so what what we try to say in response to that is yes of course there are still times when that that type of leadership is needed but it needs to be balanced with a recognition that there are times where you simply don't know the answer and your job is not to go I'm going to pretend I know the answer because I have to and I look weak somehow Mm. if I don't have it but to enable the right conversation so What we say is that the the ability to have great conversations becomes a sort of a core competence that managers need in today's world. And that's not to say all the stuff they've done before is wrong. It's about a shift. And if you then translate that thinking into the processes that organizations have put in place, which really reflect that old style of leadership, you end up with a load of processes that don't really make a lot of sense in a VUCA world. Mm. The the annual appraisal being a great example of that, obviously. It makes no sense when things change weekly. And there are any number of processes. The annual planning cycle in many companies makes no sense if you're constantly having to deal with things which are different. So, so the broad journey we've been on, just to really wrap up your, the answer to your question, is yes, it was a personal journey, but we could also absolutely see that modern leadership isn't what it has been. And, and the thinking, which really has its roots way back into the 50s and 60s and you know, mass production type thinking, it doesn't apply to the same extent. So the, the question we pose is, what do you do differently? And and when you look at a conversation, because obviously there are lots of different types of conversation, yeah. but what would you say are the, the kind of the ingredients of a great conversation? So what I think there's a couple of thoughts on that. The first is there are different types of conversations, clearly, and, and you need to be honest about which one you're having. So there's a conversation I can have with you, which is where I have the answer to a question and I tell you something. And I honestly need to confess that I have already made up my mind. I can have a conversation with you where I have a view and you have a different view and we try and debate that. And then thirdly, I can come to you and say, look, I don't know the answer to this question. Can we talk and maybe see if we can figure something out? So I think the first ingredient is honesty to say, I'm authentically having this type of conversation with you. I think the second ingredient is, Sorry, Dick, just to back up on that. Yeah. So would you suggest that that it's a good thing to signal the type of conversation that you're about to have? Yeah, I think there is a risk of being a little disingenuous. I think there are leaders who will pretend to consult, to listen, to have conversations where ostensibly it's about getting the views of others when they already have the answer. So sure. I think that is an unhelpful way of, of going about things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't, you know, signal, you know, to the extent that that's helpful. I think the second thing is attitude. A great conversation requires someone to engage with a human and not a process. And that needs to be something people 
embrace. It makes it more complicated, but ultimately it's what management's about, I think we could argue. And then thirdly, yeah, there are skills. And, and certainly we, we teach skills. We, we teach five what we call core skills to people about having great conversations. Um, but I think the skills come after the attitudes. I think one of the risks of having training in an area like this is that it can be seen as remedial quite easily. And people go, well, I know how to do this. I didn't get where I am today by not being good at this. And, and making it sound like you're not good at listening or you're not good at this, I think, puts up defense mm. barriers. So attitudinal, aspirational, this is about building the sort of culture that we want, is a really important context to this before you stick people in a workshop to say, learn some skills. Right. So, Dick, why do you think we find um, the difficult conversations so hard, you know, in terms of showing any kind of emotion? I think uh, two reasons for that, both related, and we've done research on this, which is why don't people have the conversations they should have? And if you boil it right down, there are two reasons. One is an organizational one, which is people are afraid of speaking honestly, speaking up, saying what they really think. Uh, and this is the whole idea of you know, speaking truth to power and uh, all those sort of cultural contexts that we read you know, a lot about, unfortunately, where it's clearly not possible for people to speak. So people worry about the risk of speaking up. And I think the second thing is very human. We don't like to upset people. Uh, we work together, we sit in offices together, or we used to sit in offices together, now we, we Zoom together. But that means I don't want to upset you. So I'm gonna shy away from anything that feels risky. My brain is wired to avoid risk and upsetting you is a risk. Uh, so many of us will back away from that risk. Um, so I think it's very human not to engage in really, really honest conversations. Because is that the same for even having nice conversations? Because you often hear about people, managers, thinking that they're being very complimentary and having conversations and saying how much they appreciate someone. But a lot of the employees are saying, no, my manager never says that. You know, it's, are they a bit embarrassed about having even the positive conversation? Possibly. I think there are lots of people who are in very bad habits about that sort of thing. Uh, I'm not sure they're embarrassed about it. I just don't think they do it. And they probably, yeah, and I think they probably don't appreciate the impact of doing it uh, to say that the immense power that praising someone has. I think we tend to sometimes not uh, acknowledge or understand so and i think that's probably more to do with with habits that people have than an instinctive desire to not do it um, but yeah it's, it's a complicated messy business talking with people yeah and, uh, and so i mean i don't know how much work you do with hr teams but how can hr be better at supporting leaders to have better conversations so i think there is three elements to this one is uh, what we call provoke. And, and by that, we mean getting leaders in particular to think about leadership, as I was talking about a bit earlier, and recognizing that a, a culture of conversation is important and that they need to set the tone for that. Uh, and that makes it an 
aspirational journey for the company and for an individual that minimizes the risk of people being made to feel that they're not good at something. So I think there's something around, if you like, preparing the soil and tilling it and making sure leaders are on board with this. Uh, and we run a lot of talks with British Airways and, and any in the police with lead, senior leaders to say, what is modern leadership? And a huge part of that is conversation. The second part then is training to say you, there are skills. Uh, and the problem with conversations is because we all do it all the time, it's quite easy to assume you can do it. We can all be better. And I think thirdly, this is the bit that's probably not as, as common yet, is to reward and recognize conversational competence to say there's a benefit to being good at this. It helps your career. We value it. So provoke, train, and then reward and recognize would be my uh, my view. And, on and are you seeing um, real change in organizations? Um, you described the kind of employee comms of the 1990s that we were all familiar with. Um, is, is it that different today? Are you seeing examples of organizations that are really, really changing things? I think the, the language has changed. I think people uh, talk this talk uh, a lot more. I think there is an intent amongst many senior people to do this better, um, as witnessed by the fact that we're invited to speak to lots of companies and, and get them to think about this. Uh, and there are people who buy training programs, clearly lots of them, uh, and we work with lots. I think this is one of those areas that ultimately boils down to individual managers. So I, I think there are lots of well-intended corporate statements about this sort of thing. The reality for most employees is not those statements. It's how my manager talks to me yeah. every day. So this Absolutely. So I firmly believe that you know, culture lives in moments and my reality is my relationship with you. Mm. So when people say, are there companies that do this well? I think there are companies who want to do it well. And within those, there are people who do it well. Yeah. But there are still lots who don't. So which is, I think, takes you back to the reward and recognition. Yeah, piece. I think that's a very it good. It really matters because if you don't make it granular for people, it becomes some lofty cultural yeah. thing mm. that it can can sound quite meaningless and fluffy. I think. If yeah, we're yeah, and I think you're right to to suggest that you call those earlier adopters of it out and you recognise them and celebrate them and and people see that they're getting on. Yeah. The other thing you mentioned on the training side, something that that we've advocated with with our clients is just providing little prompts for some managers. You know, rather than the than than or in addition to the, the sort of more formal training is just the odd email which says, you know, have you thought about this kind of question yeah. or, I, you know, opening, you know, something that we offer is a, a box of conversations, you know, which is just prompts for, for yeah. leaders and employees. You know, I think sometimes it just reducing it right down can be useful. I completely agree. And I, and, and I think all of these things need to be, uh, used in conjunction with each other. So I think, mm -hmm. yes, the training, yes, the reward and recognition, and yes, the ongoing nudging. Um, you know, I think most corporates, as we know, have a, a tendency to view these things as initiatives. And when the initiative <laughs> yeah. is over, we stop and we do something else. And that clearly isn't helpful. So I think, I know the, the materials you produce and they're really helpful. Uh, and, and I think they really have a role to play in, in getting this into the day-to-day -day way of doing things. So. 
I mean, obviously, we, we started off by saying, you know, we're all in lockdown and we're talking to each other here on, on Zoom. And, um, and you know, God, where would we be without all that stuff right now? But do you feel that conversations need to change between line managers and employees during this crisis? Is there a, anything that, that managers should be thinking about, particularly in terms of the conversations that they're having? Well, I think that what we're seeing is is a sort of people are feeling more or they're more sensitive and mm. there's more going on for people uh some of which is quite uh challenging or difficult so i think the way you deal with that is to talk with people to say what's going on for you uh openness uh, transparency more empathy so i'd i'd say that if anything the need to talk is greater uh, the need to acknowledge what people are going through is greater. I think a great example is the governor of New York at the moment, who's doing a mm. fantastic job having a conversation with New York about what's going on, what's hard, really empathic. And I think every manager can and should do the same. We can't mm. manage our way through this with process, I think. No. No, absolutely. It's a human thing. And I think it's, it's just interesting how if you strip all the process away, we are all messy, insecure human <laughs> beings mm. who worry. Mm. And, and talking is such a powerful thing. And if, if, if I can help with that as a manager, then I think that's a gift. And I yeah. think people would remember it. Um, yeah. And I think what's interesting for me is that we're actually seeing leaders becoming more human overnight because we're seeing yeah. them in their lounges or their home office with their kids running through and the, the cat walking across the screen, which often happens to me when I'm doing webinars and things. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, we're seeing them in, you know, showing some vulnerability and greater levels of humanity in a way, you know, which yeah. is, you know, take them out of that office context and, and you kind of just see the human behind it. And, and I think that must be helping. I think it is. And I think it shows you what you, what can be done if you just strip away some of the processes that we've yeah. built in and just say it's gone. Yeah. Get on with it. Talk. Yeah. And, and it will be a bit messy for some people. It will be a bit awkward, but that's okay. Yeah. And I think we've tried to pretty maybe protect people a little bit too much from that. And But if you take management all the way back to what it is, it's managing people. And I don't know how you can do that without talking to them. Uh, there's a lovely quote that someone said to me, which is that management is nothing more than a series of conversations yeah. with people. That's not, that's it. And if you do that well, you're a good manager. I'll do things for you. I connect with you. I feel listened to, valued. If you don't do it well, the world's different. And no process is going to fix that. Dick, that's a great, great point yeah. to end on. That's been really fascinating. Um, My pleasure. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Stay safe in this, this horrible period. Yeah, and you, and you. Um, and hopefully we'll catch up and talk about football when, uh, when this is all over. Yes, indeed. That will be fun. <laughs> right. Nice to talk to you. Thanks, Dick. Have, have a good day. Bye-bye <laughs> now. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more resources to help you change HR, check out the Disruptive HR Club at www.disruptivehr.club.